and for leading us in worship this morning. It's great, isn't it, just to focus on God, focus on the Lord Jesus, and to worship Him. And as we've taken communion as well, just to remember and not forget all God's blessings and goodness to us and the wonders of our Lord Jesus. It's great to have lots of visitors today. If you're here for the first time, a really special warm welcome to you. Great to have you with us. Um, And uh, yeah, let's uh, pray that God will really bless us as we continue this morning as we look at God's Word together. On your seat is the bulletin. On the reverse of the bulletin is an outline of today's uh, uh, message. And there's things there for you to fill in if you want to do that. There's pens in the back of the chairs in front of you. If you find that helpful. If not, don't worry, just ignore them. Uh, And everything else will be up on the screen anyway for you. It's 20 years ago now since Claire and I went into full-time Christian work. And before that, for 10 years, I worked uh, as a customs officer, and Claire worked for three years as a nursery nurse. And when Claire and I got married in 1996, I was in a role at that time that I really loved, but the downside was that I had to work shifts. I was on uh, shifts, I had to work every other weekend, and I was on 24-hour call-outs. So when we got married, it wasn't a great kind of recipe for newlyweds. It wasn't great. It didn't suit being sort of newly married brilliantly. So I decided that I'd go for a promotion, and I tried to move to a job that was nine to five, just a little bit more conducive to married life. So I applied to be a VAT inspector within Customs and Excise, as it then were. And when you're doing these kind of applications, and I know it's still the same now, you basically then had to sell yourself as the greatest thing that had ever existed on planet Earth. And you had to give loads of examples of not only what you do in your current job, but how you were fitted for the job you were applying for. And you had to try to demonstrate that you were simply the most amazing thing ever, and, and they just couldn't exist without you. And it's a very weird thing to have to do, to have to sort of write all these things about yourself like that. I, I've spoken to a number of people here recently who've had to apply for jobs, and they said, yeah, it's still the same, that's how it is, you have to kind of say all these things about yourself. And it's a very awkward thing to do, especially if you're British. It's just not something we do. We don't talk about ourselves in a positive way very easily. We don't find that very easy to do, rightly or wrongly. But then in addition to writing this kind of glowing report of myself and how wonderful I was, I then had to get my boss to write a review about me as well. And he had to uh, comment on my current work and then on my suitability for the job that I was applying for. So I asked my boss if he'd do it for me, and he said, well, look, why don't you write my comments for yourself, and then as long as I agree, I'll sign it for you. That's fine. So, okay, fair enough. So in addition to having to write my own glowing report, I then had to write this glowing report by my line manager about how wonderful I was. And at the interview panel, uh, the, the interview panel would, would basically make a, a, a major part of the decision based on my line manager's review of me. So after completing my application, I then wrote this glowing line manager's report about me. And, and one phrase that I use sticks with me. I can't remember the rest of it, but one phrase I use sticks with me, and this was it. Mr. Gibson leaves no stone unturned in his pursuit for the truth in his daily role as an intelligence officer and will bring equal determination to VAT insura- uh, uh, assurance work. What a phrase. Ah, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? I was just impressed with coming up with that phrase, to be honest, about myself. And if only that was so true of uh, my job. I mean, who wouldn't give that guy any job in the world? I mean... Amazing, he walks on water. But my boss amazingly put his name to it, and he signed it, and he did smile when he read that line. And then when I had my interview, the panel uh, doing the interview commented on this phrase and said that this really stood out, this was very impressive, and that was just the kind of person they wanted doing uh, VAT inspection. I had, a, I had another staff report, just a regular staff report, a few years earlier, in which my then line manager wrote these words, Mr. Gibson has a tendency towards verbosity. And those of you who know me well will probably say that's very true. 
I've still got that in, in a folder somewhere. It's a very weird thing to have to write about yourself and have to talk about yourself uh, in a kind of job situation and try and sell yourself, try and present yourself as the right person for a job, especially when you've got a kind of British cultural upbringing. And I feel a little bit like that this morning as I speak on the passage that we're looking at today, because today is all about church elders, the elders who lead and direct the church. And it's about church elders who work full-time. It's about paying them. It's about protecting them. It's about how they are accountable to the rest of the church. But given that I'm one of the elders here, given that I'm the full-time elder here, and I therefore get paid by the church for that role, it's a little bit awkward and a little bit strange to be talking about that this morning for me to be doing it. I guess in one sense I'm the best person to do it, but on the other hand it's a very awkward thing to do it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a difficult thing. But I hope that by the end of this morning you will agree and continue to believe, or see, I guess, that Keith... Paul, myself, uh, are doing a good job as elders. Hopefully that's what you think. And also that I'm worthy of the salary that I receive. But you'll forgive me if I find this all a little bit awkward uh, and, and, and difficult, given that I'm one of the subjects of the passage that we're looking at. So what is our passage today? Well, we're continuing to work our way through as a church the book of 1 Timothy in the New Testament of the Bible. This was a, a letter written by Paul to Timothy. Um, it's the first of two in the Bible. Paul was an apostle, which means he was a special leader with special authority in the early church in the first century, and he appointed Timothy to oversee the church or the churches in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a city in what was now modern-day Turkey. And he's writing this letter in about 60 AD. He writes this letter to Timothy, and it's full of instructions on how a local church should function and run. And in the section that we're looking at today, it's all about elders. And we've already looked at that a little bit. We've seen back in chapter 3, Paul gives Timothy a list of qualifications for elders or overseers, as they're interchangeably called. And we looked at that a few weeks ago. And then in today's passage, he looks at a variety of other issues and instructions regarding church elders. So before we look at today's passage, I thought it'd be good just to go back again to 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, and see those qualifications, that list of qualifications, and uh, just remind ourselves of that. But again, before I do, I just need to point out that elders are also called overseers. So in the passage that we're looking at in 1 Timothy, the qualifications, it's, Paul refers to them as overseers. Then in, in, the, in chapter 5, he talks about them as elders. It's the same role, the same thing that we're talking about. So if you've got a Bible and you want to turn with me, we'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 to 7, and then we'll flip over to chapter 5, and we'll read verses 17 to 25. If you want to listen, that's fine, uh, or you can read, uh, or you can just follow along as I read it uh, out to you. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, and verses 1 to uh, 7. Paul says this, Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, that's an elder, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to, take, to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And then if you flip over to chapter 5 
and we're looking at verses 17 to the end of the chapter, 17 to 25. The elders, the overseers who direct the affairs of the church well, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. Okay, so it's important to understand that the Bible always teaches and always refers to the fact that there should be a plural group of elders, never just one person, never just one man. There should be a plural group of elders leading a church. Those elders are equals. They are all the same. They are a team. However, some of those elders, perhaps one or perhaps more of those elders, based on their gifting and their calling that God has given them, might have a different role uh, perhaps a unique role within that team of elders. Some might have regular daytime jobs and they, give, they would give their spare time uh, at the weekends and in the evenings to their role as elders and that's what Keith and, and Paul do. They uh, both hold down significant jobs and, uh, and yet then in the evenings and in the weekends give an awful lot of time to being elders. And can I just say that these guys deserve a huge amount of credit and honor. They both have jobs with a great deal of responsibility and pressure. They have, both have three uh, children each and, they both, and they're married and, and, and have a home life and all the rest of it. And yet they both give a huge amount of time of their spare time in the evenings and at the weekends, lots of it that you don't see or perhaps not aware of to their role as elders here at Regent. So they don't know I'm going to do this. They'll hate me for this, but we should give them honor. That's what this passage is about. So let's give them a, just acknowledge that. And also, we've got a retired elder here this morning, David, who used to be an elder here for many years. He's no longer retired, but let's recognize the work that David did as well when he was an elder. Good to honor people who serve God and serve uh, each other. Now, one or more of that team of elders, as is the case here, might be full-time as an elder and might be financially supported by the church. That's the role that I have here at Regent. But that team are a team of equals, and those elders are not superior to the rest of the church. And, those, and there's not kind of two sets of Christians, elders, and then the kind of regular Christians. That's just not in the Bible. Elders do have a key role. They have a significant amount of authority, but as people, as individuals, they're not above or superior to other Christians or to the rest of the church. Keith, Paul, myself, we are just the same as everybody else here. The office of elder is a significant role. It comes with significant amount of authority, and it's an, it's a, it's an office that we should honor. But as people, we are just the same as anybody else. So within a team of elders, there may be one or more of those elders who works full-time, as an elder full-time, or or maybe part-time. And whilst they're no different to the rest of the elders, but because of their gifting, because of the calling, because of the fact God has called them to uh, perhaps full-time Christian service, 
Uh, they would generally have a slightly different role within that role of elders, and that's how it functions here. Keith and Paul are not able to do a lot of the things I do because they have real jobs. They've got full-time jobs and families and so on. I'm able to give my time to doing that and because of the gifting and calling that I have. And so because of that, the full-time elder will have a, a slightly different role. They'll probably take a lead in planning and strategy and organizing things. They'll probably do a significant amount of the Bible teaching. That's pretty much my role here at Regent, those two things, strategy, leading, planning, and Bible teaching. And, and that's what Paul refers to here in verse 17. He says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So all the elders will have some involvement in directing the affairs of the church, and all of them probably will have some involvement in teaching and preaching. Keith and Paul, uh, that's true for them too. But there will usually be one or more of that team whose work, what they do, is directing the affairs of the church and preaching and teaching. It's their work. It's their full-time job. It's, it's what they do. Just as Keith works as an environmental engineer and Paul works as a CEO of a charity, my work is within the context of a team of equals to lead the church and to preach and teach. That's what I do. It's my work. It's my job. And Paul the Apostle, not Paul the Elder, Paul the Apostle here says that elders who are in a role like mine are worthy of double honor. And what he means by that is financial support. So we should give honor and respect to all the elders, but those who work as an elder as full -time, uh, in a full-time capacity should get double honor, by which he means financial payment and support. And we can see that by what he says in the next verse. He says this, for the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. Paul here quotes two verses from the Old Testament. He quotes from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, and then he quotes from Luke's gospel. He's quoting the words of Jesus in the New Testament. The, the quote from Deuteronomy was part of the Jewish law uh, that, that God had given to Moses, and it was a law that, in this particular little phrase here, was about protecting animals that worked. It was about protecting them from being exploited. If an ox was tethered to a, uh, you know, a grain grinder and was going round and round, that ox shouldn't be starved. That ox should be able to eat some of the grain that it was grinding. That was the Jewish law. And in the quote from Luke is the words of Jesus, where Jesus is sending out the 72 disciples to, to go out and preach. And he makes it clear that if people were working by preaching for him and about, and then they should be financially supported by those that they were staying with. So Paul is saying that the concept of providing financial support to Christian workers, uh, of any kind of Christian workers, in this case he's talking about elders, this is a concept that runs right throughout the Bible. It's in the law and it's in the, it's in the word of Jesus. Providing financial support isn't just limited to full-time elders. It should be provided to any kind of Christian worker that a church appoints. The, the 72 that Jesus sent out were evangelists. Paul was an apostle and a church planter. And today's passage is talking about elders. Here at Regent, we've got a full-time youth worker, Ryan. We've got a cap debt center manager, uh, Linda. Most recently, Claire's work alongside myself has been uh, recognized financially. And then Paul says the same thing in, in 1 Corinthians 9. So if you want to turn over to 1 Corinthians 9, uh, just flip back a little bit in the New Testament to 1 Corinthians 9. And uh, Paul says the same thing, uh, defending his own right to be financially supported, a right that he chose not to, to take up. He actually then said, well, okay, I won't take that right, but I do have the right, he said. And this is what he's teaching in 1 Corinthians 9. So let's just read from this, chapter 9, verses 7 to 14. He says this, uh, we'll read from verse 6. Is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? 
Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So that was the, 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 the teaching that runs right the way throughout the New Testament. And when we get to 1 Timothy 5, we're talking specifically about church elders. And the normal pattern in the New Testament was to have a plural team of male elders. And one or more of those elders would be financially supported so that they could work full time. So that they didn't have to work all day and then try and in their spare time do stuff for church and for God. They were able to give themselves fully to that role. So we should give honor to church elders and we should provide financial support, double honor, to those who work full-time. Write that on your outline. We should give honor to those, whoever they happen to be. Currently, it's Keith, Paul, and I. We hope to bring on uh, more elders in the next few years in this church. We should give honor to those who serve as elders, and we should provide double honor, which here is, um, means financial support, to those who work full-time in that role. In some churches, the full-time elder is given a particular sort of working title, such as pastor, and that's fine, so long as we understand that he's not above or, 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 or different or superior to the rest of the elders. All elders are actually pastors. The word pastor is just the Latin word for shepherd, and all elders are called to be shepherds of the flock. Peter writes these words, to the elders among you, I appear as a fellow elder, be shepherds, pastors. It's the same word of God's flock that is under your care. So we should honor both we should honor church elders. We should provide financial support to them if that's their calling to serve in a full-time capacity. But we also need to protect our elders. This isn't just about the full-time elders. This is for all elders. Because when you take a, a leadership role in a local church, then Satan will attack you. Satan will attack those who seek to follow God, whoever they are. And if you are in a leadership role in any kind of situation, you're putting your head above the parapet and Satan will have a go. And I would suggest that those most under spiritual attack in any local church will usually be the elders, not because they are superior, but because of the kind of role they have. You know, if you hit the leader and the leader falls, it causes a bigger mess, doesn't it? So I would suggest and argue that actually those under most spiritual attack at any one time are generally the elders of a local church and also their wives and their children. Satan will throw all he can at them to try and stop them leading their church. And that's really sobering. And it just underlines how important it is that we all pray for each other, because we're all in a spiritual battle continuously, but also how important it is that we pray for the elders of any church that we're in. Please, can I ask you to pray for us, for, for Keith, for Paul, for myself. Please pray for us. Please pray for our wives. They need God's help just for being our wives, but they need God's help too because they're in the front line because they are alongside us. And, and would you pray for our children too, who didn't ask to be our children, didn't ask to be the children of elders, but get all sorts of stuff thrown at them as well because they're the children of the church elders. We are not special. 
we are just the same as everybody else and we desperately need God's help, we desperately need God's protection and we desperately need your prayers. So please, can I ask you, pray for our protection. Please pray for our protection from the enemy, from attacks, whatever those attacks, whatever form those attacks might come in. We, we, we need your help so much. We really do need your help so much. Please, would you pray for us? Would you remember us on a daily basis uh, as, as we do you? Paul says in verse 19, as, as he kind of expands what this might look like, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. So one of the ways in which Satan will attack the elders of a church is by people inside the church or outside the church making false accusations. So to protect elders from false accusations, if and when any accusations are made of improper conduct, then those accusations should be dismissed unless there's two or three witnesses. And once again, Paul is falling back on a principle that runs right the way through the Bible. It's in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. This idea of two or three witnesses needed to establish the truth is found in the Old Testament, it's in the law, and Jesus repeats it in the New Testament as well. And I've put some references on your outline if you're interested in that and following that up in your own time. So we need to protect the church elders from false accusations. It's a great way for Satan to pull elders down if, if, if mud is thrown at them and mud sticks, doesn't it? And it's a great way for Satan to bring elders down if, if, if false accusations are thrown at them, or at anybody for that matter. So we need to protect our church elders from false accusations. But if there are allegations of improper conduct, then they do need to be dealt with. If there are two or three witnesses, Paul says, and if the allegations are found to be true after they've been properly looked into and due process has been followed, then action should be taken. Elders are in a, in a position of significant authority. The phrase in verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well, th- that phrase literally, more accurately, is translated the elders who rule. And in fact, in, in many uh, translations, that is how they put it, the elders who rule. There's significant authority in the hands of church elders. But with authority comes accountability. Church elders are not above being questioned or challenged. They're not above being held to accountability. They're not above being held to account. Elders are accountable to God first and foremost. And and, and as elders, Keith, Paul and I will answer and will stand before God and, and, and give an account for how we've lived our lives as elders as well as anything else. But church elders are also accountable to each other. And that's why in the New Testament you always have a plural group of elders who are accountable to each other. What I do with my time, uh, I'm accountable to Paul and Keith for that and how I behave and, and vice versa. But also, as a group of elders and as individuals, we are accountable to you. If you're a member of this church, then we are accountable to you. We are not above you. We are not better than you. We are not superior to you. We hold an office, which is significant, but we as individuals, as, as believers, are no different to you. And we are accountable to you. And we are not above you. The elders are accountable to you, to all the members of this church. So yes, elders should receive honor. Full-time elders should receive double honor, financial reward. But elders are also accountable to the members of the church. They're not above the other members or above being held to account. We need to hold them to account in a nice way and and an appropriate way and so on. But nevertheless, we are uh, not above being held to account. If an elder behaves wrongly, Paul says, if they're behaving in a way that's incompatible with them being an elder, then the other elders need to take action. 
Paul says this, those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. So if an elder is found after there's been some kind of accusation made, or perhaps there isn't an accusation, but the elders become aware of it, however it happens, if an elder is behaving wrongfully, is sinning, is behaving in a way that's incompatible with being an elder, then the other elders need to take action. Paul says this, those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. There needs to be some kind of public action, public rebuke and discipline so that the other, so the rest of the church know that this is taken seriously. But here, Paul talks about so that the others may take warning. In other words, the other elders may realize. And, and this would usually involve the elder uh, involved uh, stepping down from being an elder, either temporarily or more likely permanently from the, uh, I guess that would depend on the circumstances and the situation. And part of the reason for that is so that the other elders will they'll think that, that they will then think really carefully about their own behavior and about their own conduct and lifestyle. It's so important that any accusations of wrongdoing and any actual wrongdoing is dealt with well and is dealt with properly and dealt with biblically. We want to protect elders from false allegations, don't we? And we want to protect elders from troublemakers, whether that's inside the church or outside. But we also want to ensure that if an elder is behaving wrongly, that that is dealt with properly, and it should be dealt with properly. And Paul gives here, uh, alongside Matthew 18, where Jesus teaches along this idea also of how those who uh, behave in a way that's incompatible with being a church member or being an elder should be dealt with. And Paul says this, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. So it's so important that we take the role and behavior of elders seriously. We need to protect them from false allegations, but we mustn't dismiss allegations just because of friendships. Elders, hopefully, will be good friends. The three of us are really good friends, but just because we're friends, we need to, to do nothing, Paul says, out of favoritism. We need to treat these things with impartiality, take things seriously. It's a really difficult situation to be put in, and hopefully that will never happen here. But if it does, these are the, the guidelines that Paul gives us to follow. Now, one of the ways that Paul gives to avoid these kind of things happening is to try to avoid appointing the wrong man in the first place as an elder. Look at what he says in verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The laying on of hands in the Bible is a kind of symbolic way where the elders or or perhaps others would physically lay hands on a person and by doing that as they prayed for them, it was a kind of symbolic way of demonstrating that they were uh, perhaps welcoming that person into their fellowship as a church or appointing someone to a role as a missionary or appointing elders. And that will be done by the laying on of hands. And we do that here when new members come. We, we lay hands and we pray and we're just kind of symbolically saying, yeah, this person's now joining this church. Or when we have a new elder or a new staff member or someone takes on a significant role in the church, we might do that. We lay hands on them and do that. In this context, Paul's talking about the laying on of hands for the appointing of elders. Paul is saying, look, Don't be hasty in appointing new elders or in reappointing an elder that's sinned and has been disciplined. If you appoint elders too quickly, you might live to regret it. The old saying is true, isn't it? Act in haste, repent at leisure. If you rush and you appoint the wrong man and then it goes wrong and he behaves badly, you will in effect, says Paul, end up sharing in his sins. 
So he says to Timothy, do not share in the sins of others. Paul is saying, take your time, assess a man who you're thinking of appointing as an elder. Does he meet the qualifications of chapter 3? Is his conduct in keeping with the role? In chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, which we read earlier, Paul lists a whole number of qualifications for elders. But then we, what we have here, Paul kind of sums up all those qualifications. And instead of going through them in detail, he talks about it as a general principle. And he says this in verse 24. The sins of some men are obvious, <clears throat> reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. In other words, as you examine the life and conduct of men who you are perhaps thinking about uh, appointing as elders, some will very quickly rule themselves out of being elders because their behavior is so poor. Their sins are obvious. You don't need to sit down and, and, and kind of make some big judgment on them because their behavior is so far short of what you would be looking for from an elder. It's reached the place of judgment ahead of them, says Paul. With some men, it will be less obvious that their bad behavior, that the kind of issues that they might have might not be as noticeable. It's as if they're kind of their bad behavior, their sins are trailing behind them. But if you take your time to get to know them and, and examine them, their conduct, their behavior, their lifestyle will become obvious. Then you will see that they're not suitable to be an elder, or at least not for the time being. And in the same way, if a man is living a godly life, then their good deeds will be obvious. And even the good deeds that they do in private will be evident to you sooner or later. So we should be really wary, really careful before appointing an elder who's been removed from that role. It's going to be highly unlikely, I would suggest, in most cases that that elder would be able to be reappointed. But if we do, we need to take our time. And we should be really wary and very careful before appointing new elders. We should take our time to ensure that they meet all the requirements that are laid down in the Bible. And if we get it wrong, and if we appoint the wrong man, it may well be, not always, but it may well be because we've rushed in and we've not taken our time to really get to know that man. And if that's the case, then Paul is saying, look, to some degree, we share in the blame for whatever sinful behavior they engage in. Paul then says what, what seems at first a little bit of an odd thing to say in the context of this passage. This is what he says, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. And at first glance, this might seem a little bit, what's this got to do with the rest of the passage? In the middle of instructions about appointing elders and the accountability of elders and, and, and paying elders and so on, what on earth has it got to do with the rest of the passage? Well, it seems that Timothy, from what Paul says here, had a stomach problem and maybe he had other illness uh, issues as well. And as was the case in most countries, probably up until about 100, 150 years ago, the water wasn't always safe to drink. If you, had a, if you, if you have a bad stomach and you're in somewhere where the water's a bit dodgy, then you have real problems. I have Crohn's disease, and I had a, about a foot of my small bowel removed a few years ago. And if we go anywhere new, it takes about four or five days before my stomach settles down, just because the water's different. The water can be totally safe. It just messes with my stomach for a few days. If you have a bad stomach and you're in a country where the water isn't safe, it's not good at all. Up until the mid-1800s, the safest thing to drink in this country was beer. The water had been boiled to make the beer, so it was the safest thing to drink. People didn't realize that was why, but people generally didn't get ill from drinking beer. They might have got drunk, but they didn't get ill. Whereas people drank water, they often died. Often, you know, cholera was spread by, uh, by drinking water. My great-great-great-grandmother died in Gateshead in 1853 from cholera from drinking poisoned water or in infected water. And the same was true of wine. Drinking wine was often safer than drinking regular water because the water hadn't been treated as it would be today. 
And so the problem, although the problem with drinking wine, or beer for that matter, was that if you drink too much of it, you get drunk. And of course, when you get drunk, you can end up doing all sorts of sinful things that you probably wouldn't do, or hopefully wouldn't do, when you were sober. And so it seems that Timothy had been avoiding drinking wine because he didn't, understandably, as a church leader, didn't want to get drunk. He wanted to stay pure. But by just drinking water, it was causing him all sorts of stomach problems, all sorts of health problems. So Paul says, drink wine for your stomach's sake, but, but, but keep yourself pure. Don't get drunk so that you end up out of control and engaging in all kind of sinful behavior. Timothy's physical health was important, and so, with his, so was his spiritual health. And what was true for Timothy is true for the elders of a local church. So can I ask you also to pray for the elders in this church? Pray for Keith, Paul, and ourselves. Please pray for our physical health. And for our spiritual health, if you see us drinking a little wine, it's because of the water. Um, Wherever we are, we're taking that literally. But would you pray for our physical health and our spiritual health? Because Satan will attack us in all these different kinds of ways. We're just three ordinary men. If, If you know us at all, you'll know that very quickly. We're just three ordinary guys doing our best trying to follow Jesus God has called us to serve him as elders in a local church, in in this local church, but we are no different from the rest of you. And we are frail, fragile men who are seeking to follow Jesus, but who are subject to temptations, to problems with our health, to doubts, to fears, to pressures on our marriage, to family challenges. We are just the same as everybody else. We're like everybody else in this room, and we desperately need your prayers. We desperately need your help and your support. I hope you will feel and believe that Paul Keith and I are worthy of honor, and I hope you'll believe in that principle of double honor, of rewarding biblically those who serve full-time, those both as elders and also those who serve in other full-time capacities in this church, and I hope you will feel that. If there are things that you don't like that we do as elders, or things you want to ever talk to us about as elders, or any concerns you have, then do come and speak to Keith at any time. He'll be delighted to chat with you. He'll, he'll, he'll happily talk to you. No, genuinely, seriously, come and talk to us. We, we genuinely want to uh, help and support and lead this church as well as we possibly can within the, within the, the confines of our own uh, frailties and fragilities and, and so on. But we need your help. We need your prayers. And we would really ask that you help us to do that. Uh, we meet once a month formally to work through an agenda, and we pray a lot as we do that. We try and meet once a month and pray just to meet to pray. We're meeting at the end of this month for a retreat day, a kind of evening and a, and a day away, just to pray and seek God for the year ahead. And we are just, yeah, frail guys trying to do our best. So please, would you pray for us in that and, and join with us in that? We really need your help. We hope you feel confident in us. We hope you feel that we fit the biblical qualifications. Um, we'll leave that with you. But I'm going to ask uh, Paul and Keith, they didn't know I was going to do this, but Paul and Keith just to come up and join me. I'm going to ask Louise Morley and uh, Bob Sykes uh, to come and pray for the three of us and for our wives and for our families. Not because we're, any, we're special or different to anybody else, but because the role that we're in, we just desperately need God's help. So uh, Bob and Louise, would you come and pray for us, the three of us? We... Uh, you lead, lead the church on behalf uh, of us as pr- in prayer. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for blessing us as a church family with elders and their wives who love and serve you. Thank you for the gifts that they have, both individually and as a team. Thank you for their hospitality, wisdom, knowledge, teaching, and forward-thinking nature. We know that we are blessed, and we thank you. 
In a world that is becoming more hostile towards you and more intolerant of biblical views, we want to lift up Andy and Claire, Keith and Lucy, and Paul and Victoria, and ask for wisdom and discernment as they help us navigate potentially tricky times ahead. We pray for protection over their marriages and their families. We pray for their children, that they would continue to grow in their relationships with you. And we pray for good health so that they can continue to serve you here at Regent. I pray that as a church family, we would know how best to support our elders and their families, whether that's practically, emotionally, or spiritually. I pray that we wouldn't be obstructive or divisive, but that we would also be discerning and hold each other, including those in leadership, accountable to your word. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to, uh, <clears throat> to pray really on, um, on your behalf and all of us uh, for these uh, three fine men of God here. So can we pray, please? Almighty God, great God of glory, creator of all the ends of the earth, we come before you now as a church with our prayers for these men, our overseers. Please hear our prayers. We pray for each one of them for spiritual and physical protection. We pray for their regular meetings and we pray for wisdom from the Lord as they lead our church. We want to pray as a, as a, as a church that our elders would be empowered by the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the word. And we ask that you'll give them boldness to speak matters of your heart and not to seek to please men. Give our elders boldness to stand as correctors to the flock and grant our elders grace to be encouragers of the body of Christ and give them wisdom to know what to say. May their walk be blameless before you and raise them to truly be men after your own heart. And now I want to, uh, to pray a little bit about how we should pray for ourselves as we posture ourselves um, to our, uh, our overseers, our leaders. I pray that we might be um, supportive and encouraging in our words as we speak to our elders and as we speak of our elders, that we should be building them up always as your servants and let us not be gossipers or troublemakers. That in our thoughts we may always present ourselves as being thankful for our elders, grateful for all that they do and being respectful and obedient um, and giving them honour, thinking only the best of them, uh, thinking only the best of these three servants of you. And lastly, I, play, I pray that in our deeds, that we might always show ourselves to be willing workers in building up your kingdom here on earth, closely supporting and working alongside our elders. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I'm going to ask Ryan and the band are going to come and just lead us in one closing song. Thanks, Ryan.